Well, we are in our last week of this joyful series. I say joyful because I have had a joy in going through this series, and it is also called joyful. Um, But going through the book of Philippians, and uh, I hope we all kind of know the context. Oh, I... I'm in charge of kids stuff, and I always forget the kids hour. Kids hour is happening right now, and teacher Patsy and teacher Lucy are headed to the back. So kids, meet them in the back of the sanctuary there, and head upstairs um, for a fantastic, fun time. Um, For the rest of us, we're in, this is week 10 of 10 in the book of Philippians. Congratulations, we made it. Um, hopefully we all kind of understand the context of what's happening here, right? Paul is in prison, but not jail prison. He's under house arrest. He is writing from a house um, where there's a guard or guards that are with him. Um, and he is there because of what he is preaching about Jesus Christ. Um, and he is writing this to the church in Philippi. And this church in Philippi has supported him um, financially, Uh, They have supported him in probably more ways than just financially, but he notes financially here. And this church, we recognize perhaps more than any other church that we have in Scripture, Paul is deeply connected to these people, right? He has a deep love for these people, and they have a deep love for him. And this is kind of his final letter, um, we believe, to his friends and his co-laborers in the gospel, Um, They have supported him all along this way. They're currently supporting him by paying for it. Because at that time, if you're under house arrest, none of your needs are are met by the people who are imprisoning you. Um, And so the Philippian church is supporting him by paying for the rent for whatever house that he is in, paying for his food, paying for um, all sorts of supplies. He, He writes a bunch of letters while he's there. So probably the parchment and the ink that he is using. Um... So that's kind of the context of where we're at in this entire book of Philippians. And I want us now to think back on our community queue. Who is the most generous person that you know? I want you to, to picture that person in your mind right now. Picture the... No, Jesus, cop out. <laughs> Jesus is a fantastic answer. Picture the person that is the most generous person you know. And I want you, as you think about that person, are they generally... Joyful, or are they generally gloomy? And as you think about that person and that question, do you think there's a connection here between their generosity and their joy? Yes. And as you think about that, we're going to read our scripture passage this morning. So would you stand with me, um, those who are willing and able, as we read from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I was very glad in the Lord because now at last you have shown concern for me again. Of course, you were always concerned, but you had no way to show it. I'm not saying this because I need anything, for I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry or whether having plenty or being poor. I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. Still, you have done well to share my distress. 
You Philippians know from the time of my first mission work in Macedonia how no church shared in supporting my ministry except you. You sent contributions repeatedly to take care of my needs even while I was in Thessalonica. I'm not hoping for a gift, but I am hoping for a profit that accumulates in your account. I now have plenty, and it is more than enough. I am full to overflowing because I received the gifts that you sent from Epaphroditus. Those gifts give off a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice that pleases God. My God will meet every need out of his riches in the glory that is found in Christ Jesus. Let glory be given to God our Father forever and always. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters with me send you their greeting. All God's people here, especially those in Caesar's household, send you their greeting. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the church in Philippi, again, was very special to Paul, right? I hope you recognize that because we keep saying it, right? For the last 10 weeks, we've been telling you that. The church in Philippi was special to Paul. Paul loved them ferociously. They loved him ferociously. Um, And because of this deep relationship that they shared, the Philippian church um, had at some point before the writing of this letter had supported him financially. Um, In verse 15, we see that earlier in his mission, in his ministry, they had partnered with him um, even when no other church did. They had had some kind of previous financial engagement with him where they had sent him similar gifts, um, but for whatever reason, they had not been recently. They had been unable to for a period of time, but now they hear once again that Paul is under house arrest and in in need of their support, and so they jump right back in. They re-engage in supporting Paul. And it says in verse 10, Paul says that he is very glad in the Lord for it because he knows that it is the Lord who has met his need through the church in Philippi. So the Philippians have given him this gift, but Paul, in classic Paul fashion, is always pointing back to the Lord, right? So he says, thank you for the gift, but I am glad for the Lord in it. But he doesn't completely downplay the Philippians' role in this, right? He is saying... He's not saying this as kind of a, a brush off and like, oh, you, like, thank you, thank you, Lord, and Philippians, whatever. He's, he's saying, thank you for your giving, and I rejoice in the Lord for it. Um, we know that Paul wrote several other letters while he was in prison. Um, we have this letter. We have the letter of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. All these letters combined are called the prison epistles. They are letters that Paul wrote um, during his time in some kind of prison, whether that is a jail cell or under house arrest. And as Paul states here, the Philippians have been his biggest supporters during that time, and perhaps his only supporters during that time. And so the ministry of the Philippians to Paul has enabled his ministry to continue on, to move forward. He says, you had concern, but you had no way to show it. In other words, there was heart there. They had the heart to support his ministry, um, but the opportunity was not there. And I think that that's a really important thing for us to note here. Um, concern means it's on their heart, it's on their minds, right? They are, they are thinking of it often. They have concern for Paul. And when concern overlaps with opportunity, that is where you find ministry, You have 
the heart for it, the concern for it, it's on your heart and mind, an opportunity arises, and when you jump into that opportunity with your concern, with your passion, that is where you can and are able to minister. And a quick side note, or maybe fast-forward note, at the end of this, in verse 22, he says, All God's people here, especially those in Caesar's household, send you their greeting. And if you, if you know much about this time period, Caesar is uh, emperor of Rome, guy who probably had Paul arrested, um, cruel and diabolical, mischievous, classic villain type, right? He has Paul arrested, and people, especially those in Caesar's household, are sending Paul their greeting. And it's not a mocking greeting. It's not like, hey, hey, you're in prison. But this is... This is the, the household that is Caesar. It's, it's probably not just family members. It's, you know, guards and, and, and all of that. Um, everyone who would be in the actual house. Um, but what we see here, you can put Paul anywhere, and he's going to convert some people, right? We, we talked about that quite a few weeks back earlier in Philippians. Um, but what, what we also see here in Paul's ministry is that this doesn't just come from Paul, right? Paul's ministry has been supported by the Philippians. And so when the concern of the Philippians overlaps with the opportunity to once again support Paul, that's when this ministry happens. They lived out that ministry and the conversion of the members of Caesar's household has a direct link back to the faithfulness, the concern, and the opportunity of the Philippians. So now back to Paul's attempt at a thank you note. Uh, he says, of the gift, he says, that's, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Um, but I want you to know I didn't really need it. Right? And that's not a good way to write a thank you note. I'll give you a tip. Don't write a thank you note. Thank you for the gift. I didn't really need it. That's not very courteous. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Well, because he's Paul. Paul, Paul isn't one for uh, social norms. He's trying to teach and remind his church that the gift that he has received and their ultimate hope and confidence, his ultimate hope and confidence should not be found in the gift or even the giver of the gift, but in Christ and Christ alone. The hope and the confidence is not in anything other than Christ. He's saying that even if they had not been moved to give, he would not have been in need because his life, his ministry, all that he is, is not in the hands of the Philippians. It's not in the hands of any other churches that are sending him or not sending him finances. It is in God's hands. He knows that God will provide for him through someone that God is enough for him. As he says, in any circumstance, he says, I'm not saying this because I need anything for I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. And this word contentment is an interesting one. I think it's commonly misunderstood. Um, it's, it's commonly thought of as this emotional detachment from things, right? You don't get too high, you don't get too low, you're kind of just right in the middle of the waves of life. And while there is some truth in that, I think that emotional detachment is not, not the best way to think about contentment. Because we have feelings and emotions and, and thoughts for a reason, right? The emotions and thoughts and feelings are not, um, they're given to us by God, right? They're not 
They're not sinful in and of themselves, but they make better, much better servants than they do masters, right? If we are listening to our feelings and our emotions and we are letting that dictate our entire life, we are not being faithful to God. We are not being content. If we completely remove ourselves from our feelings and our emotions, we are not being faithful to the gift that they are from God, the tool that God has, has offered to us. We should be excited when things are going well. And we should be grieving when things are not going well. Those are healthy things to feel. But that is not what contentment is. Contentment is not separating ourselves from our feelings and emotions. One way I've heard contentment described is that it is moving from anger to peace. It's moving from frustration to satisfaction. It's moving from anxiety to trust. Contentment is a positive understanding of what you have. Contentment is being satisfied with things the way they are. Not unable to change, not that kind of satisfied with things the way things are, but being content, being assured, being confident of the way things are. It's a choice to step out of the bleakness of life and into confidence. So last week, Grady um, shared what God has been doing in his life and in Kaylin's life over the past year or so. Um, and Kaylin, a couple of weeks ago, was sharing in our small group uh, about her perspective on things. And she's not here this morning, otherwise I might have tried to encourage her to come up here and share. Um, but I did, I did ask for her um, words on what she had shared in our small group, something that stuck out to me as this idea of contentment. She said, throughout the last year, there have been times when things felt pretty bleak, and the idea of being content or thankful seemed unrealistic and honestly kind of annoying. I was having a conversation about this with someone who suggested that I start by just noticing one thing a day that doesn't suck. It doesn't have to be good. I didn't have to be thankful. I could just notice that not everything sucked. It felt doable. And the more I started noticing these things, the more my perspective has shifted. So contentment isn't necessarily this just rose-colored glasses view of life. And it's not that emotional detachment. It's not being crazy optimistic. It's not being just resigned to our fate. It's all too easy for, I, th I think, for our minds to focus on what's wrong or what's not going well or what's not ideal, what we could do better, what could be better about our lives. And we get sucked down into this kind of... Um, Depression and just the bleakness of life. And contentment, I think, is step by step recognizing what doesn't suck, what's not horrible about life, so that we can continue to learn to be satisfied with what we do have. And I love that Paul puts it that way. He says, I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. He had to learn contentment. I have a good friend that I grew up with um, who he and his now wife were going through premarital counseling before they got married. And um, one of the things that came up uh, that caused some further discussion was that um, when, when they were asked to describe their relationship or, or some kind of question like that, she used the word content, that, that she was content in their relationship. And, and she meant it as a good thing, right? There's safety, there's security, um, there's, there's confidence in that. 
But for him, having been an athlete for most of his life and, and, and an academic and really striving for things, he thought, she's content in our relationship. That means that, like, we're not moving forward. We're, not, we're just kind of sitting back. Like, we're not striving for anything. We're not doing anything. And so their, their backgrounds contributed to how they understood this word contentment. They both had to learn through this conversation and surely many more. Um, they had to learn what contentment was and not only for themselves, but for their spouse. But this idea of learning contentment, it's not something that comes naturally for us, right? It's perhaps something that would have come naturally before sin entered the picture, but because we are fallen, sinful humans, it is far easier to be discontent with things than it is to be content with things. So Paul says that he learned contentment because he recognizes it's a process. Contentment doesn't just happen. It's not some, flip, some switch that we can flip. Which is why, like Mark said, probably a lot of us overate at Thanksgiving, huh? Second plate, third plate, fourth plate, I admit it. Lay on the couch, feel gross watching football and fall asleep. That's Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> But contentment is something that must be cultivated from a new heart that only Jesus Christ can give us. And some people think that contentment is a lesson that you learn when you don't have anything. And that generosity is something that you learn once you do have something, once you have a lot. And let me say, that could not be further from the truth. Paul explains it to us in this passage. He says... I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry or whether having plenty or being poor. So contentment is needed all along this spectrum from poverty and need to wealth and plenty. All along this spectrum, contentment is something to be learned for all people. And I know a lot of us are probably thinking, I would love to learn contentment over here in the wealth side of things and having more than enough. I would love to learn contentment over there. Because we don't want to have nothing, right? We want to have something. But the reality is that contentment is learned all the way. Whether you have nothing or whether you have more than you could ever imagine. And some of us buy into this trap of more, 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 more. And we think, if I, if I can learn contentment now, then I, I won't have to learn it when I, when I get the money and I, when I get the stuff. But when we get a little bit more, when we slowly move up that spectrum, our, our standard of living grows, we, we fill in that margin that we had at one point, and we want more, 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 more. And we get a little bit more, and we want more, more, more. The reality is that Contentment is not dependent on what we have or do not have. Contentment must be learned whether we have a lot or whether we have a little. In other words, contentment is not about what's in your hands. It's not about the objects and the, the money and whatever. It's not about what's in your hands. It's about what's in your heart. Contentment is a, a state of the heart, not a state of the hands. And Paul calls it the secret of contentment. Um, but I think if you've been around a church for too long, if you went to Sunday school at all, you might know the answer. You might know the secret. What's the secret? 
Jesus. Jesus is the secret to contentment. It's not a, not a very hidden secret, right? I would hope. Jesus Christ is the only one who can cultivate that new heart in us, that new heart of contentment rather than discontentment. So with contentment in mind, we then arrive at one of the more popular verses for people to quote. And this verse, verse 13, it's understood very wrong a lot of the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the, I had to put the, I think it's the NIV up top because that's the, the real popular one, not the translation we have. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about sports, okay? I've heard it in reference to sports a lot. You can slap that on a basketball t-shirt for a Christian basketball camp and people love it. But it's not about that kind of a what I can do, right? I'm, I'm six foot two, 230 pounds. I'm built like an NFL linebacker, but the harder I believe this verse, I'm not gonna get any closer to playing for the Seahawks. I know. But I love how our translation puts it. I had to put them both up there. I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. Paul is saying that he can face plenty or want through Christ who strengthens him. He can face that abundance and that need through Christ who strengthens him. He can endure all those things. I love the, the verb of endure rather than do. We can endure all things through Christ who strengthens us. It is Jesus who gives Paul and gives us the power to weather poverty or wealth because he trusts that Jesus is his ultimate provider. And you know why? Because the greatest need of the human heart has already been provided for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. You might remember in the book of Mark, chapter 2, Jesus is teaching, and there's a, a paralyzed man who is lowered down through the roof. Right? His friends really want Jesus to heal him. And so they bring him, they pull all the tiles off the roof, they lower him down, Mission Impossible style. Let's see if it works. Oh, that's a gift. He should be lowering down. They lower the man down, Mission Impossible style, right in, interrupting Jesus' Sunday school lesson. And Jesus, it says, he, he looks at the man and he sees the faith of the man's friends. And as this man has been lowered down in front of him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And if you're the guy that's just been brought to Jesus and you've been lowered through the roof, you've got to be thinking to yourself, cool, not really why I'm here. I'm kind of here for, you know, I'm paralyzed. But okay, that's not really my greatest need, Jesus. But Jesus says, yes, it is. Our, our greatest need has always been and will always be forgiveness. Our greatest need is always to be reconciled to a holy God. And in Christ, we have been provided with the way to to do that, to be reconciled. Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. And he rose again so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be called 
children of God. No matter what else we have or what else we think we need, forgiveness is always our greatest need. Reconciliation in Christ Jesus is all we really need. If we understand our need for forgiveness, that is when we can find contentment in life. And if we understand that our deepest need is always forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we will, always, we will be content. But until we are content in Christ, we will never be generous with what we do have. And that's what we're going to look at next. We've already talked about how the, the Philippians were generous to Paul, and they supported him during his time in house arrest. Um, but the way that Paul writes about them, it's very clear that they weren't just generous supporters of his mission. They didn't just give the money, but they were generous partners. From Paul's perspective, they were partners in the gospel. They didn't just offer money, but there was something deeper than that. We'll read verses 14 through 16 again. Still, you have done well to share my distress. You Philippians know from the time of my first mission work in Macedonia how no church shared in supporting my ministry except you. You sent contributions repeatedly to take care of my needs, even while I was in Thessalonica. So Paul says to the Philippian church, you know, hey, I am ecstatic. I am pumped that, that Jesus in Christ sent, you sent these gifts to me. Um, I, I was already content and, and trusting in God to provide for my needs. And you were the ones who did it. You provided for my needs. Um, thanks for being that answer to prayer. Thank you for being the faithfulness and the provision of the Lord. And I love the words he starts with there, that you have done well to share my distress. That's good stuff. And you know why? Because I'm a word nerd and we get to t do a little bit of word nerding together. So the, the word Paul uses here for share, you have done well to share my distress. He's used it several times in this letter already back in chapter one. In chapter one, verse five, Paul thanks them for their partnership in the gospel and this word partnership, it's a Greek word that translates as fellowship. And it's the same word that Paul uses here for sharing in his distress or in his trouble. So they, they were partners in the gospel, that partnership in the gospel. That's the same word that's used here to share in Paul's distress. And then a couple verses later in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul calls them partners in grace, uh, both in his imprisonment and in his you know, defense of the gospel and his, and his preaching of the gospel. It's the same word used there, that they are fellowshipping with him in gospel and in suffering. And this is what it looks like for people to live out Jesus' greatest commandments. What's the greatest commandment? Yes, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it. Yes. Excellent. Good. 100% pop quiz. Well done. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus first, others second, self third. This is gospel-infused community. It's this idea of sharing that Paul talks about time and time and time and time again throughout Philippians and throughout, I would say, all of his letters that he writes. It's a concept that we see a couple chapters ago in Philippians 2 when Paul reminds us not to do anything um, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others 
um, as more significant than ourselves, right? In other words, Jesus first, others second, self third. So when we are putting, say it with me, Jesus first, others second, self third, when we are doing that, we are humbling ourselves before other people. We are putting their needs ahead of our own. We are serving them. That is when we are loving others as Christ has loved us. And the Philippian church seems to have a reputation for doing this, for being these kinds of people in their community and for sharing the troubles of other believers in this way. Jesus first, others second, self third. In fact, if you have a Bible um, and you're still open to Philippians, you can flip a few pages back to the left and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, it's also going to be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. Um, verses 1 through 5, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. He's writing this to the Corinthian church. He's talking to them about the church in Philippi. He mentions um, the churches of Macedonia, which would have largely been the church in Philippi, uh, and maybe the church in Thessalonica and Berea. And on his ministry journey that we read about in Acts, he goes, goes to these churches or plants these churches in that region. And this is what he says about them, about the Philippian church to the Corinthian church. Brothers and sisters, we want to let you know about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. While they were being tested by many problems, their extra amount of happiness and their extreme poverty resulted in a surplus of rich generosity. I assure you that they gave what they could afford and even more than that, they could, and even more than they could afford, and they did it voluntarily. They urgently begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints. They even exceeded our expectations because they gave themselves to the Lord first and to us, consistent with God's will. Now, this sets up a little bit of math. Um, we're hitting all the subjects today in school. This sets up some math. Are you ready? Yay, math. Many problems plus extra happiness, plus extreme poverty. <laughs> it's not Jesus. Ooh, content is a, is a good answer. Ooh, yes, generosity. A, he says a surplus of rich generosity. And I don't know about you, but I look at that and I think, that's some Jesus math right there, because that does not add up to me. Lots of problems and poverty even if you sprinkle in that extra happiness does not mean that I'm ready to give a bunch, right? Because I have a lot of problems of my own and I don't have a whole lot of money to solve them. But that's Jesus math because it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't add up to us, but it is exactly what Jesus did. This equation makes sense because it's an equation that Jesus lived out, that Jesus exemplified for us. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about it, um, and he also wrote some beautiful words in Philippians uh, chapter 2. But Paul tells us that, that Christ, who is rich, who is God, became poor for our sake, so that we might become rich in him. Christ left the eternal glory and honor of heaven, the riches of heaven, the praise of heaven, and he came to earth to take on human flesh, sinful human flesh, to become like us, to be born to this poor teenage girl in the small corner of the Roman Empire, unknown, disregarded, dishonored, 
And then his ministry began and he began to heal people like no one had ever seen before. And he began to preach with all authority that nobody had ever heard before. And he, he fed thousands of people with a Lunchable and he walked on water, right? He did these amazing things. And then he went to the cross. He died. And in doing so, he took all of our dissatisfaction with what God has provided for us. He took all of our selfishness, our distrust, all of our sin upon himself. And he bore the judgment that that we deserved. He stood condemned in our place. And he sealed our pardon with his blood. And because of that, we are offered this full restoration in Jesus Christ. And when you and I receive that finished work of Jesus with empty hands, when we receive his life and his death and his resurrection, our trouble, scripture says, our trouble becomes his trouble. And his blessing becomes our blessing. And that is what the Philippian church understands They understand this grace of God that has been offered to them. To them, Jesus was very real. Jesus Jesus was meaningful, impactful in their lives. And they understood that the nature of God's kingdom is oftentimes upside down, right? The way up is down. The way to exaltation is humility. The way to life is death. The upside down kingdom, the way to receive blessing is by giving. And the Philippian church understood that. And by the power of God's spirit at work within them, they learned to loosen their grips on what they did have. This is a people that were not wealthy. In fact, as it said there, they had extreme poverty. They didn't hold tightly to what very little they had, but rather the Holy Spirit's power allowed them to open up their hands and release whatever little they thought they had for the sake of the kingdom. And God blessed them for it. They invested in the kingdom of God like no other church was able or willing to do. And I'll, I'll give the other churches the benefit of the doubt. Um, maybe they, whatever the case was, they, they maybe weren't able to um, or weren't willing to. We don't know. But for whatever reason, the Philippian church is the only one who is, has this surplus of rich generosity, even in their extreme poverty. And I know that for our local church, we've had a lot of hard conversations lately surrounding finances. As the church staff, as the church board, Pastor Mike has shared some of those um, conversations and, and decisions that have to have been made. I wouldn't say that we are at the level of extreme poverty um, but we, we have our own set of financial issues, right? But we have to ask ourselves, as a church, who do we want to be? Do we want our community to see us as people who have enough and are stingy and hard-hearted with it? Or do we want people to see us as a group of people that even though we maybe just have enough, maybe we're just scraping by, We are generous and we are joyful with what we do have. I can tell you who, what kind of church Pastor Mike and I would like us to be. But words up here don't make any difference if it's not changing anything out there. It's only in doing this together that we can determine, that we can help determine 
who we are in this community. So until we are content in Jesus Christ, we're not going to be generous. And until we are generous, we are not trusting God completely. And that's the final piece of this passage that I want us to look at. Verses 17 through 20. I am not hoping for a gift, but I am hoping for a profit that accumulates in your account. I now have plenty and it is more than enough. I am full to overflowing because I received the gifts that you sent from Epaphroditus. Is that the end of it? I don't recall. Oh yeah, there's more. Those gifts give off a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice that pleases God. My God will meet your every need out of his riches in the glory that is found in Christ Jesus. So Paul is careful to remind them, you know, thank you. I'm very thankful for your financial support, but I wasn't really after the money. I wasn't after the gift. I was after the fruit for you that might, that it might benefit you. And this language that he uses, the, the fruit and the profit language that he uses, that is uh, the financial accounting language of the day. The fruit is essentially interest that is gained. He says, I'm seeking the interest that gets credited to your account. And here's what he means. In Acts chapter 20, we're flipping around some more. In Acts chapter 20, Paul quotes Jesus and he says this. In this way, we remember the Lord Jesus' words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm happy to receive so that you can be more blessed by giving. I don't need it, right? I'm content. But because of what it means for you, I'm happy to receive it so that you will be more blessed by God, so that the interest will be accumulated to your account. Um, I have all I need, but God is honored by your giving spirit. I hope it's, it's clear to us that we don't give in order to get. That's not, that's not how this works. We don't, we don't give so that we can get. That's not a biblical principle. The purpose and the motivation of giving is not so that we can receive something in return. There's an old story about um, a king, a farmer, and the king's guard. It's, a, it's an old preacher story. It sounds like the intro to a joke. It's not. It's a story. King, a farmer, and the king's guard. And, you know, once upon a time, there was this king, and he had this great land, and a farmer in the land has grown this great, the, the largest, the best carrot he has ever grown. And he says, I, I want to give this to the king. And he, and he picks this prize-winning carrot. He takes it to the king. He says, king, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown, that I ever will grow. And because of how much I love and respect you, I give it to you. And the king is, is obviously very grateful. He, he accepts it. And as the farmer turns to leave, the king says, hold on a minute. I can see that you are a good steward of, of this gift, of this land that you have. You, you farm well. And so I would like to give you an extra plot of land for this carrot that you have given. And the, the man is, is amazed. And he goes home rejoicing with this extra plot of land from the king. And the king's guard has heard this whole conversation and he thinks, ooh, if he got an extra plot of land for a carrot, imagine what I could get for a horse. 
So the next day he comes in with, he, he breeds horses and he brings in his, his noble steed, his, his beautiful black stallion. And he says, King, I breed horses and this is the, the best and the, and the most handsome horse that I have ever bred and that I ever will breed. And out of my love and respect for you, I offer it to you. And the king says, okay, thank you. And takes the horse. And the, the guard stands there confused. What's, what's happened here? And the king sees his confusion and he says, the farmer gave for me. The farmer gave his carrot for me and you have given the horse for yourself. We do not give to get. Our purpose and our motivation in giving is not so that we will receive something in return. And yet there's also this idea that Paul talks about elsewhere, which is that those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those who sow generously will reap generously. The Philippians give generously, give sacrificially, right? They don't give out of some kind of surplus or some Christmas bonus or tax refund or stock dividend or any of that. They are giving from their hard-earned what little money they have that could go to other things. They gave according to, and, and Paul even says beyond their means, beyond what seems reasonable to them. They gave in a way that I would say if they were a member of our church, them giving in this way because of how impoverished they were, we would say, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to give that. I know that you have your, your own needs and your own things that you need to take care of at home. You don't need to give that much. But the Philippians were so strongly convicted that this, this gift is for the kingdom of God. Out of my contentment, out of my generosity, the kingdom of God is too important. And so they had to make those hard decisions of what to say no to so that they could say yes to the kingdom of God. They had to make hard decisions about what they could go without so that they could be generous with what they had. And when we say no to things, that makes it more important to determine what we say yes to. And the things that we say yes to make it more important to recognize what we can and should say no to. And the Philippian church said yes to the giving to the kingdom of God far and away more than anything else in their lives. So when you and I can joyfully put Jesus first and others second and self third, then we know that the gospel has affected our lives. It's not just something we know, it's something that we are living out. We're free to give away whatever God entrusts to us because we know that we are not content in what we have, but in whose we are. We are content in Christ. We are not content in what Christ has given us. And we can know that he will provide our every need according to the riches that are his in Christ Jesus. So ultimately it comes down to this issue of where is our trust? Can I trust that whatever I have is exactly what God deems is enough for this season of my life? Can I trust that whatever I have is enough because the God that I serve and the God that I have received from is enough? Can I trust that if I open my hands and open my wallet, that the Lord will meet me wherever I'm at? 
In verse 19, Paul is absolutely confident that my God will meet your every need out of the riches of his glory, or out of his riches in the glory that is found in Christ Jesus. Paul is, is confident because he saw God provide for his own needs through the generosity of the Philippian church. And if Paul knows that God provided for his needs through the Philippian church, he knows that God will provide for their needs, whatever those needs are, through someone else. Because they put Jesus first, others second, and self third. And when we put Jesus first, he will not abandon us. When we choose to put him first in every aspect of our lives, and and especially in this very sensitive issue of our finances, when we trust Jesus and put him first, Jesus will not abandon us. There's a passage of scripture that I was recently reminded of that talks about finances in this way and uses a word that you may have heard me say a couple of times today. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The love of money. You don't have to have money to love money, right? Some of the wealthiest people don't love money and some of the poorest people love money. Too often money is seen as this sense of, of security and stability and comfort, right? It is, it is this way of providing for our needs. And so we put our trust in our money rather than putting our trust in Jesus, who is the ultimate provider. We don't have to have money to love money. So the author of Hebrews, Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And in that part there, the author of Hebrews is quoting uh, from the Old Testament, from the book of Joshua. These are the words that God has spoken over Joshua, that I will never leave you or forsake you. And the author of Hebrews connects it to this idea of our finances by saying to free ourselves from the love of money and be content that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. Open hands. Open your hands free yourself. When you open your hands, Jesus will not abandon you. Jesus will not leave you or forsake you. And I know some of you might be hearing this and thinking, this guy is just trying to guilt me into giving more money to the church. And that is not this at all. I promise. You can blame it on Paul for writing these words or Pastor Mike for making us do this series in Philippians. You might push back and say, you know, Inflation is nuts right now. Gas is going down, but the gas is still expensive. Groceries are through the roof. Or you're on a fixed income and you have other bills to pay. Or you have student loan debt. There are plenty of reasons for us to say no. There are plenty of reasons for us to be uh, discontent. For us to say, what little I have, I need for my problems and my issues. I'm also not recommending that you be unwise with your finances. Don't just stop paying your bills, please. But this idea of generosity, of contentment and generosity, goes back to, do we trust God completely? Is God the creator and the sustainer 
of all things. Is God our Father in heaven who knows us and loves us and cares for us and will take care of every need that we have? Does God not promise that if the birds have enough, how much more will his people have? How much more will he care for our every need? Did God not offer up his own son for each and every one of us? God is worthy of our trust. God is reliable. God is steadfast. God is trustworthy. And God is faithful. And when we trust him completely, we can be content in any and every circumstance. Regardless of what situation arises in life, we can find contentment. And it reminds me of, of a song that most of you may know. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is contentment right there. Whatever circumstance I face in life, it is well with my soul. I am content because of what Christ Jesus has offered me. And it's only then that this community that we are in will be impacted. Because they're going to see people who live differently than they do. People who are content in every circumstances, in every circumstance. People who are generous, even though it might not look like they have enough. People who can trust God completely in any and every circumstance because God has proven that he cares for us in each and every circumstance. Our contentment in Christ overflows into every circumstance, into every part of our lives, especially in our generosity to others and in where our trust lies. The worship team can come back up now and we're going to close with a final song. Um, it's called Blessed Assurance. It's by um, a group called City of Light. We have done a couple of their songs um, and this is one we've done a couple times in the past. It's different than the, the classic Blessed Assurance uh, song that you may know, but it speaks to our confidence, our assurance, our contentment in Christ Jesus. Regardless of our circumstances, we trust in God. And I, I want to read for you the words of the bridge because I think they get right to the heart of this contentment that Paul is talking about. The bridge says, Ever my anchor, ever my strength, ever my portion and all I need, ever my healing, ever my hope, ever the truth that leads me home, that leads me home. Our contentment is tied to our generosity. It's tied to our trust. Are we willing to surrender all to Jesus Christ and say, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Would you stand and sing with us now?